You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. This is Energy Insiders and my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as is his want is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Giles. I tr- and I trust all our listeners are well also. Yes, well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, look, there's an awful lot to discuss, and I think we've got a few subjects on this week. Um, let's start with Wyala and the Green Steel City. Um, the UK billionaire Sanjeev Gupta, as we know, bought Wyala um, oh, a couple of months ago. He um, signed an agreement to buy it out of bankruptcy, talked about the possibility of using green energy to make it viable. Um, obviously with a night of reduction in costs, and then last week unveiled more details of his plan. In total, one gigawatt of um, renewable energy made up of about um, an expanded solar plant. They're all really going to build a smallish one. They now want to make that 200 megawatts. They're throwing 100 megawatts and 100 megawatt hours of battery storage. They're throwing in 120 megawatts times 5 hours or 6 hours of pumped hydro and doing some demand management. We'll probably do some co-generation as well. They reckon they can cut costs by 40%. They reckon they can probably roll it out in different sort of formats and arrangements with their other more bigger and bigger energy consumption in um, Melbourne and uh, Sydney where they do electric arc furnaces. Sounds like a pretty good deal, David. Well, it does. I think the intriguing part of it is, of course, the pumped hydro. Uh, Solar farms are great, but they're not new. And one hour's worth of battery storage uh, is very useful, but it remains one hour. I guess it's like making bread. I mean, it's all very good. You can start off with the flour, but you need all the other stuff, don't you? So the pumped hydro is, uh, from the little information that I've seen so far, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is going to use a disused mine site. Is, is that uh, is that your understanding? Yeah, that's right. In the middle back ranges, it's a um, it's an old it, it's it's a depleted iron ore mine that used to serve the steel mill. And so there are about three kinds of pumped hydro um, that you can see. There's the seawater kind that's proposed for Kaltana. There's your conventional turkey's nest kind that um, uh, Andrew Blakus has been on about. And then there is this disused mine site uh, type. Now, the advantage of the disused mine site is that you get a very uh, steep vertical drop, which generates lots of energy. Uh, the difficulty is that you have to uh, build an, a cavern at the bottom of the mine shaft to hold all the water, and access to that can be very difficult. And you have to get all the uh, quite big uh, uh, generators down to the bottom of the mine shaft, uh, which requires very specialist equipment. So I, I'll be uh, incredibly interested to see what the cost of that part of it actually works out, because that's going to be the key. I think there's uh, lots and lots of big aluminium smelters and mining sites that would love to have uh, dispatchable renewable energy and if we can make it work with pumped hydro as that's the the missing link that'll be absolutely fantastic. And it kind of turns a lot of the debate on its head doesn't it because we've been hearing endlessly about how renewables cannot power a modern economy in particular big things like aluminium smelters. Here you've got steelworks saying well yes we can and we can do it and we want to do it um, around the country and they're going to be seeking more um, 
um, they're going to be seeking other energy users. It's basically, it's kind of bringing in um, this era of um, what's called the corporate PPA, the corporate power purchase agreement. So we're sort of seeing this shift between new projects having to rely on the big retailers agreeing or deigning to, to sign a contract, um, taking a punt and going merchant on the market, or just simply signing a contract with a big energy user. Uh, absolutely. You know, as we get to the LRET target, which I think there's a good, I think you're going to have a few, um, you've been looking at some of the REC data. Uh, all of the guys uh, that have got um, PPA, um, sorry, solar or wind farms that want to get up aren't going to be able to find them as easy to get to with the traditional electricity retailers. And in any case, there's only a few of them and you don't want to be held hostage about them. So going direct to the corporate market, to the big users, uh, is, is clearly uh, a big opportunity. And we need to remember that something like uh, 30 or 40 per cent of the electricity that's consumed in Australia is consumed by industrials. And so they've all got the financial muscle, by and large, to, to they've got a great asset in their electricity demand and their ability to participate in that corporate PPA market. Yeah, it's interesting. In South Australia, um, earlier on this year, there was a group of the big energy users, including the likes of Nearstar and some of the other big um, industrial users, got together and actually tended for a bulk corporate PPA. Now, I'm not too sure what actually happened to that. I don't think it got very far for various reasons. But it's going to be interesting because if Wyala Steelworks and Zen Energy, which is Ross Garneau's um, retailing and um, oh, sorry, um, solar and storage um, company, which got bought out, or at least the majority was bought by um, Sanjeev Gupta, the guy who now owns Wyala, um, they were sort of saying that they would take 520 megawatts um, of the solar was quite conditional on um, on getting other, well, it's conditional on a bunch of things, but, but would probably be marketed to some of these um, other users. So it'll be interesting if that bulk that bulk buy group um, actually starts to, to engage um, with this lot. I can't, um, it, it seems like an obvious, um, an obvious link up. Well, that's right. I think uh, from the retailer's point of view, those uh, collective buyers, you, you, you have to worry about the credit quality of each and in individual um, customer and so that they'll all differ and and that makes it difficult for the retailer or the original uh, to actually uh, have one tender for the whole group but but nevertheless that may progress but as I said by far the most fascinating side of this thing is the pumped hydro uh, there are very few details available on it yet um, around the world pumped hydro does has seemed to take a long time to build and often costs more than you think and there are occasionally environmental issues so I'll be, I'll be watching this thing with a huge amount of fascination but I don't expect that we'll get a lot of details every day on it. No, no. No, look you touched on the renewable energy target indeed the clean energy regulator which kind of sort of manages this put out some de um, data last week late last week on Friday which I've just been looking through according to them they reckon it's about 86% met and about the only thing that's left over is 860 megawatts of capacity. Now, that could actually be filled by this Wyala pro proposal, um, pretty much. So we can be, we can pretty much presume that it's just about gone, um, which basically means that um, there's a couple of things that um, new wind and solar projects are going to be relying on. And um, at the smaller end, they might get, they might go merchant, like this new Swan Hill solar farm, which has been done by Impact Investment. That's 15 megawatts. So they're small enough to possibly sort of jump in and, and see how they go on the wholesale markets. But apart from that, they're going to be relying on the aforementioned corporate PPAs, or they're going to be relying on the state-based targets. And um, we've just had Queensland, which was promising a 400 megawatt tender, just go to the polls. No certainty of them getting back. Um, we've got Victoria, which has legislated its VRET, 
is promising to hold a 650 megawatt reverse tender, but no signs of that, although I'm told possibly in the next week or two. Yeah, Giles. So, uh, I mean, the big asset, as we know, that renewable energy, wind and solar has going forward is, is it's cheaper than uh, than the futures price at the moment. So you've got this basic incentive to keep building that's just straight price driven that, that doesn't at the moment need uh, PPAs if you're prepared to take the merchant risk. That's fine as far as it goes. There are other questions for people who are doing projects under the REC, and that is, as I said, the projects that have started after 2020, after the LRETs met, whether their RECs will actually be able to qualify uh, or uh, for, for, for REC pricing. Uh, in my opinion, I think in the opinion of a lot of other people, they shouldn't be able to. I mean, it's a bit of a technical point, but they should all be voluntary surrender. That way, the guys that are starting projects today uh, know that their assets are the ones that are going to actually uh, be able to get the revenue right through to 2030. You don't want some uh, solar plant that started in 2022 under under a state scheme or just under a straight market-based approach being still able to try and get RECs. Indeed, yeah. Hey, look, I'm just going to stop um, just for two seconds just to say thank you to our sponsors who are Solaray Energy and What Watches. We do appreciate your support. Um, just about the future for wind and solar then, I guess the other big question is over the National Energy Guarantee. Um, now, you've written a bit more about this today, and Ross Garneau was speaking about it last Friday. You both came to... Ross Garneau's speech was quite, um, um, well, quite exhaustive and um, quite a full analysis, but one of the points he did agree with you on was that um, this seems to benefit, in the eyes of the market at least, the... Um, the big three incumbents, and I guess that's one of the big fears um, about this um, national energy guarantee. And you pointed out that um, their share prices have actually jumped since this was announced about a month ago. Yes, they've outperformed the market. And, and uh, look, uh, if you're a shareholder in AGL and ORG, that's that's Origin Energy. That that's a good thing. Uh, if but it does uh, make you worry uh, about the extent of oligopolistic power those guys have got. And as we know, that's been a subject of some debate. And that's why I personally think the state-based schemes uh, provide a new form of competition. Uh, and I think the other very good thing about uh, wind and uh, solar projects, particularly solar projects, is that, you know, at 50 megawatt size, there's lots of room for new people, if they're prepared to take a risk, to go in on a merchant basis. Now, one of the things that... Uh, uh, I think is also interesting, and if we look at the share market, is this uh, forthcoming IPO, initial public offering of um, uh, new energy solar. And that uh, started in 2015 as a, a private sort of stapled security. Uh, write me a postcard if you want to know more about stapled securities. <laughs> but it raised $75 million in 2015, and now it's on its... Uh, uh, Second secondary market uh, equity raise, so this is the it's the third raise altogether. And what's really interesting about them is how pop, not just how popular it's been, but that they've been investing mainly in U.S. solar farms and the yields that they are taking over there. They started at a six and a half percent yield. That is, the solar farm is generating six and a half percent on the capital that they invested in it, and now they're down to five. Okay, give me a hint, David. Is that is that is that high or low? Well. Uh, you know, 6.5%, is it high or low? For instance, someone bought the uh, Chatswood Chase or 50% of the Chatswood Chase uh, shopping centre today on a yield of 5%, uh, to give you an idea. And, and uh, uh, interest rates that you can get in the bank are, are just 2% or maybe 25 3% if you're really lucky. 
So that's a 6.5% real yield. And it's, uh, I think it's a lot lower sort of yield than people would have imagined in the past they required to finance new solar projects. And, and now the new solar farms that they've just uh, investing in in the United States, again, are on 5.5% asset yields. Uh, so that, that they've fallen. And it's, what's essentially saying is that if you've got a solar project with a PPA, uh, that essentially it's regarded as a pretty risk-free investment. And this is why I think the state reverse auctions with the certainty that they give to people are such a wonderful thing for consumers because they will enable the solar farms and wind farms to be financed at very low cost of capital, lots of debt, and that means lower prices being charged to consumers at the end of the day. And we've actually started to see some of these other um, investment funds coming into Australia. I think we've got, um, um, gosh, what's their name? Impact Investment. They had their first solar fund and they're actually using Swan Hill, which I mentioned a while ago, as the first asset in the next solar fund. Um, so, And they're probably looking, well, I'm not too sure what sort of yields they'll be looking for in Australia. It's probably just between them and their, um, the investors, the um, mostly private investors that... Um, sign on but there's been a couple of uk funds coming in as well so a lot of them are seeing that these these solar farms at least the ones with contracts um are um are pretty solid investments and just just solid infrastructure type assets i guess they are solid infrastructure type assets that are very i think myself there's a tremendous appetite amongst the institutional investment community for these sorts of assets uh, and as I say, uh, new energy solar is particularly interesting because they're the first one to actually disclose these acquisition yields that, that I'm aware of, uh, at least in this, uh, for Australian uh, equity funds. And so they provide an actual benchmark of what your cost of capital at the asset level actually is because in people are snapping the things up at these prices and, and, and I find that very encouraging. Mm, that's good, yeah. And um, my, under my understanding is that New Energy Solar, which has been underwritten, I think, by Morgan Stanley, um, is actually looking at some sort of assets in Australia, but we're yet to find out any more details of that. Hey, listen, I just want to take on to another subject now, um, something I wrote about last Friday, um, which I thought was really interesting. It's a really small tender, probably the smallest tender that we've made into a lead story, but we did it because we thought it was um, a bit of a change in tune. And this is Ausgrid. And what it's done is that it's actually said that um, we want to build new rooftop solar in some industrial areas in inner Sydney. So we're talking sort of southern Sydney around the airport, Alexandria, St. Peter's, Kingsford Smith, a bit of Randwick, a little bit out west at Auburn. And what they're saying is that um, to defer expenditure that they will need to make on replacing aging grid, the best thing that they can do is actually reduce demand on a permanent basis. The best way they think they can reduce demand on a per permanent basis is to encourage businesses in those areas to install rooftop solar. They mostly operate through the day, so basically the rooftop solar will decrease the amount of energy that they use over a longer period of time. So we're not just talking about critical peaks here, we're talking about average use. And they're prepared to give a $250 a kilowatt um, incentive to do so, which is probably about quarter, one-fifth, or you know, maybe probably around about 20% of, um, of the cost of the technology. Very interesting, I thought, David, because it kind of turns on its head this old argument that solar is nothing but 
a, um, a blight on society, a drain on networks, a cross-subsidy from people who don't have it, it actually shows that there's some major ma network benefits to it. Well, that's right, Giles, and it's a, I thought that was a great story uh, of you to write, and it's fantastic to see Ausgrid, as much as the actual benefit itself and all the other things that you can identify, it's the fact that uh, Ausgrid is taking a positive attitude towards it that's perhaps the most encouraging thing. And uh, as you know, we had the Energy Networks Association uh, on this very podcast, Graham Bradley, when he was there, uh, talking about how important it was for networks to get on board with the behind the meter type of thing. And here we see Ausgrid, which in uh, days gone by would probably have resisted the stuff uh, fairly intensively. Now, as you say, actually bloody well subsidising it. I mean, it's incredibly <laughs> fantastic. And if you drive around the outskirts of Sydney, like I often do for my model plane comps and stuff like that, you will see hectares of uh, warehouse space on roofs that is just waiting to have PV put on it. And it's uh, close to the point of demand, provided the roof can actually support it. And, and it's often used mainly during the daytime, as you've said. And, and this is just, I mean, for at least five years, I've been seeing this as a huge market opportunity. And here we are. Now there's an incentive. Here we are indeed, yes, absolutely. Um, with apologies to uh, John Bradley from the um, Energy Networks Association rather than Graham, <laughs> who I think used to be at the BCA, but never mind. Um, yeah, well, look, I mean, the networks are starting to embrace rooftop solar um, in more ways than that because they're looking at them for sort of microgrids, particularly at the end of networks and sort of mini grids in the middle of networks, um, even in cities and in suburbs in, in Melbourne and stuff like that. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and Giles, where, where, where PV comes, batteries will not be following not far behind. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, look, another one, while we're still on the subject of rooftop PV, interesting in South Australia, some, um, a new report came out um, with absolutely no fanfare at all. Someone pointed out to me it was buried on the AEMO website um, on South Australia. It actually noted that 9.2% of the generation in South Australia last year came from rooftop solar, and that was probably more than 10% once you include the large-scale rooftop solar, you know, like the 100 kilowatt, 200 kilowatt, 300 kilowatt systems, of which there is many. And predicting that um, within about a decade, this would double. So there'd be about 20% um, of generation in South Australia would come from rooftop solar, which tells me two things. One is this is really showing this big shift between centralised generation to decentralised energy. It's something that the CSIRO have talked about, that other people have talked about, kind of an, an inevitable thing when people are obviously finding that your own solar is the cheapest way to, to reduce prices. We see the same thing with Wayata Steelworks. They're going to build their own solar. It's going to be behind the meter. They're going to cut their energy costs. If you add in all the things that they're doing, you're probably talking about one third um, in a decade coming um, of generation coming from the people who use it. Um, that's just such a big shift, isn't it? Uh, it absolutely is. And as I said, uh, we've said many times, it makes it very difficult for to reduce prices for grid-delivered electricity uh, when you've got the behind-the-meter stuff uh, uh, proving such severe competition. At the same time, uh, there are all these issues which have been mentioned before that uh, the behind-the-meter guys are generally um, having a bit of a free ride in the sense that they're not that they want to stay connected to the grid, uh, but not use it very much. And 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 we, in the fullness of time, we have to find a way to make all of that work together, which I'm sure we can do with a more cooperative attitude than than we're seeing at the moment from from the authorities. So really, we just need uh, all of the governments uh, to get on board with the transformation that's coming about. And this is what makes me so upset when I say, look at the Queensland Liberal Party, or I see the stuff that Oliver Yates was kicked out of a Liberal Party function in Victoria 
I mean, I'm not anti-liberal at all. I think there's a huge bunch of the Liberal Party that is very pro-renewable energy, but they've, they've really got to get a lid on the troglodytes within them uh, and, 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 and get with the program. Absolutely. Yeah, that function that you mentioned with Oliver Yates, um, that was a Liberal Party fundraiser um, at the Glass House in Melbourne. And um, Oliver stood up and objected very loudly to the fact that um, a uh, Liberal senator was presenting Scott Morrison, the treasurer, with a lump of brown coal, um, obviously wanting to get into the act that related to Morrison's rather um, dubious decision to present a wave a lump of black coal around in the uh, House of Parliament just after the... um, the latest load shedding in South Australia, and um, I guess the Liberal senator um, decided that maybe he wanted to have the full set and have a lump of brown coal as well. Oliver got objected after um, uh, objecting, got ejected after objecting loudly and being told to go by Michael Kroger, the uh, Liberal Party power broker. Hey, look on LMP. Just interesting. I caught and today, and I didn't actually talk to you about this before the podcast, but the LNP has actually suggested that one way of getting to reduce its power prices actually to write down the value of the networks in Queensland. Now, I haven't actually, I've just really seen a headline and stuff like that about it. Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, well, they're one of the few organised, I mean, in Queensland where the networks are still owned by the government, they, they, they could conceptually be written down. Um, that, that's certainly possible. Uh, that's like, but uh, I mean, in the end, that will just be a transfer from uh, uh, the government directly to consumers. So it's not actually going to help the Queensland deficit that would actually make it worse. Yes, well, they've already got a major transfer from the consumers to the taxpayer because there's a massive um, CSO, the customer service obligation, which basically sort of subsidises the delivery of power in regional Queensland um, to the point of about $600 million a year. I mean, Charles, Plus- it wouldn't be popular, but my view is still that the networks in, in Queensland should be sold off uh, and, and they should raise the money. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, I just, I mean, there will have to be a write-off of network assets at some point in time. But, but as I've mentioned before, if you actually look at the cash flows of the networks, there are still new customers that want to be connected to it every year. And a lot of the spending that they do is actually, the actual cash that they spend is, is, is maintenance. So all of that's still going to have to be funded, uh, no matter how, even if people only connect to the networks once a year. An intractable problem um, that is yet to be worked out. How do we do that? Look, let's look forward, um, David. Um, what's happening in the next couple of weeks? I do notice that the Energy Security Board is having a webinar later on this week to sort of talk more about the National Energy Guarantee. It's not. It's only a 45-minute webinar, basically twice as long as this little podcast. So I presume it's not going to be much detail and more sort of marketing. But it's, an in- it's interesting that the ESB, which is a... Um, a function of COAG is marketing a policy they have not yet presented or even been endorsed by COAG. Um, Look, good luck to the ESB. They've got a long way to go. They're at the start of their life. I think uh, what we're all really looking forward to is what the Labor governments, state Labor governments are going to decide up at the COAG Energy Council on the 24th of November, followed the next day by the Queensland election. The uh, Labor Party's been playing their cards very close to their chest about what they're going to do at that COAG Energy Council. And so uh, I I look forward to some news on that. Uh, Until then, I think uh, uh, not much is going to happen. Yeah, I'm just going to quickly mention the modelling that was done. Um, You mentioned it in your story too. Um, It's a bit unfortunate. (laughs) You said you felt sorry for the people who had to do this modelling. 
But gee, I mean, some of those prices they're going to factor in are pretty, um, pretty out of the ballpark, aren't they? Well, it's not just the prices, but that, yes, they're nutty uh, and they're ridiculous, and the cost of capital that they use will be wrong uh, as well. But uh, the fact that, as you say, there's no uh, emissions reductions beyond 2030. Look, I, I won't. I, I'll look through the modelling, and then I won't use it. And I expect that uh, <laughs> unless it suits my purposes, and that, that's the fate of all modelling. It's not modelling that's been done with a genuine objective. It's been modelling that's done with a political objective of trying to demonstrate that electricity prices are going to go down, you know, $100 under this perfect world. That's the way, and that's, it's, it's, it's not actual modelling. It's, uh, it's, mm. it's, 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 it's politics. Oh, there you go. Okay. And I guess the, the rest of the action might happen down in Victoria. Um, there's the Melbourne Cup run on Tuesday. I didn't see any horses with an energy type name. Um, and, um, and hopefully, hopefully, um, maybe my, um, my information is right and maybe they might start to roll out um, some more details about this, um, this state-based auction because that's really going to be a statement of intent, I think. Um, that they are definitely going forward with their state-based target and as you say, crucial on so many levels for the future of wind and solar in Australia and not least because it's finding the least cost through a reverse auction. Giles, we're starting to ramble on, but you mentioned the Melbourne Cup. I've long since ta- stopped taking any interest in the horses. I think I ran a book on it back in 1967 when Rain Lover won uh, and I was still at school. But what I do love about the Melbourne Cup is those fascinators and, uh, and the photos you see in the Daily Mail and stuff like that of uh, how drunk people can actually get there. Those hats are something to be seen, really, don't you think? They are indeed. I'm just wondering, actually, would your model plane actually beat the horses around the track? Uh, at 280 kilometres an hour, I, I, uh, I suspect uh, the horses <laughs> should go around them so fast. The horses would take such a fright. I remember I, I, I took off at Lismore and there was a horse in the next paddock and it took off and hasn't been seen since. <laughs> Thanks very much, Will. Um, good idea, David. Look, I think we'll just leave it at that. And um, I'm just wondering what the planes might do to the fascinators. It um, could uh, could be an interesting result too. Look, um, thanks for joining me, David. And um, look, thanks for all the to all the listeners. Um, we do appreciate you tuning in. We do appreciate your feedback. We do appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. And um, we'll be back next week. Um, thank you very much. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.